Southern California, created by our old friend Bob Forrest and his friends Evan, Jared, and Bob. Oro is an amazing place that uses connection and compassion rather than control in treating alcoholism and drug addiction. Their staff has many decades of experience in treating co-occurring mental health disorders, including SMI, We have friends that have been there. Everybody that I know that has been there only says great things about Oro. They have amenities you wouldn't believe. Sound bath meditation, surfing, equine therapy, and of course the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge. The detox is as comfortable as a detox can be. If you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California, check them out at ororecovery.com. Read the reviews, listen to people who have been there, and if you need help, go to Oro. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by Sober Buddy. Sober Buddy is an app, it's a social media platform, but it is so much more. It's a community. We do Zooms every week. I'm part of the Sober Buddy community. There's a lot of dopes in it. On Wednesday morning, we have a meeting at 9 a.m. It is always incredibly helpful. This week, we talked about recovery, burnout, and loss. We talk about relapse. We talk about prevention. We talk about gratitude. We talk about things that addicts need to talk about and alcoholics need to talk about in order to get well. Check them out on the App Store or the Google Play Store. There's a free 30-day trial, so check them out at YourSoberBuddy.com. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our very good friends at Evolution Accounting and Consulting. They are a full-service accounting firm that can help you with your taxes, your bookkeeping, your payroll, and almost any other business need you may have. Thanks to the miracle of technology, they work with people from all over the country, and they pride themselves on building exceptionally strong relationships with their clients. Their passion is all about you pursuing your entrepreneurship, your business. They understand the stress caused by worrying about taxes and accounting issues, so they take it off your plate so you can focus on what you love to do. And perhaps the most important part is the firm is run by a crackhead. Luckily, he's in recovery and he knows the struggle as well as the success. 
Use the promo code DOPEY when you connect with them at www.evolution-accounting.com and you will get special discounts. If you need an accountant, check out Evolution Accounting and Consulting. They've been an incredible sponsor, an incredible resource. So please check them out at evolutionaccounting-consulting.com. Okay, before we get into the show, I want to tell you guys about a great recovery podcast called Recovery in the Middle Ages, all about two middle-aged suburban dads and their pursuit of life, love, and recovery. Listen as they discuss current topics of interest to the recovery community, including 12-step, all sorts of different books, the newest medical research, and they talk about their daily struggle to maintain their recovery and anonymity in the world of soccer moms and PTA meetings. If the neighbors only knew, find Recovery in the Middle Ages wherever you get your podcasts and check them out at recoveryinthemiddleages.com. Now enough with these ads, let's get to the show. Welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. My name is Dave. Um, we got some really bad news this week, which is that longtime listener and friend of the show and my friend, Brian Connolly, also known as Hot Wheels. He's been contributing to the show since episode 83. I think it was in episode 83. We played his first voicemail, and he died on Sunday. He died the day that our podcast hit 10 million downloads. He died the day before it was the fifth anniversary of Chris's death. And um, the same day, this article in Spin Magazine came out about Dopey and all of the deaths associated with it. And it's a lot. Some things to remember about Brian... Uh, one, he was one of the sweetest people ever. Two, he was kind and generous. He put his number on the show, and people would call him, and he would help them. I, I talked to many, many people who were in touch with Brian, and Brian was their window into recovery. Another thing to know about Brian is he was a quadriplegic. He broke his neck when he was young, diving into a pond on a bet while high. He told the story on Dopey, and we're going to play that later on in the show. And, and just so you know, we have a very, very special guest as well on the show, Dr. Anna Lemke from Stanford, who wrote this incredible book, Dopamine Nation. But before we get to Anna, I want to honor Brian some more. If you're not on Dopey Nation on Facebook... You should, you should join it, but also you should know it's, it's a sort of really dysfunctional family. And one of the members who's really dysfunctional but really embedded is a guy named Scott Wick. He's, Scott has been a very vocal member of the Dopey Nation. He submitted a number of rap verses that we've played at the beginning of shows. He's been on voicemails. He's been on Patreon shows. He is a beloved member of the community and a friend of mine and the de facto leader of the Dopey Street Team. He wrote this beautiful thing about Brian that I want to read. And just to say, Scott Wick isn't usually noted for his wisdom, but I think this piece is beautiful and wise. So he, start, he says, I'm definitely no writer, but here goes a long-winded spit for Hot Wheels. 
was trying to narrow down my emotion of Brian passing. Then while reading the spin article yesterday, it hit me. Fucking anger. I'm not mad at him or anything or anyone, but I just feel angry. I'm mad I didn't keep closer touch. I'm mad I didn't make a better effort to see him when he was in Florida or when I was in Chicago. I'm mad I didn't spend that extra few minutes in Zoom at the end of a meeting that one day when it was just me and him bullshitting about conspiracies and electric cars. I guess I'm kind of mad at life. Part of me thinks like I'm scared to get close to people or create these new relationships through recovery and dopey. Like if I didn't know the people we lost, I wouldn't have to feel it when they are gone. Now that's selfish as fuck, and I wouldn't even be here on this planet if it weren't for people in recovery and people in dopey. But that's just how I feel. Which, when you break that down, is isolation. The opposite of connection. The opposite of what Brian would tell us what we needed. So unfortunately, we have to live through these tragedies, and then to hear this news on Chris's anniversary, it's like, what the fuck? There are many of you that I love like family, that I would fight for, that I know are always here for me, but you are just always there. Like maybe I'm not making a strong enough effort to show or receive that love. And although we don't talk every day or even every month, I know you are fucking here for me or for there for me, vice versa. I guess it really puts shit into perspective of how real this community is. Like how much love is right here, all with roots to a podcast we all stumbled upon. Across, sorry. That's some real shit. Like, step back and think about all the shit we have stemmed from a podcast. Brian always had a way of connecting to you. Before I moved to Florida, I lived in Bensonville, Elmhurst, Addison when I was young, pretty close to where he is from. So he was my connection through Dopey to that area. Hard to explain, but it was like a taste of home to hear his perspective on shit. His ability to connect was amazing. He always found that one thing to connect to people, and I loved bullshitting with him. On 80s cars, music, his unmeasurable beef, belief that Twista was the greatest of all time of hip-hop, his zero filter to disagree, to just spark a deeper topic, Italian beef spots in Chicago, one of the few who would stand by my side at any ketchup doesn't belong on hot dogs arguments, the Bears, the fucking Miami Hurricanes, his knowledge in sports, really just overall knowledge about random shit. He also had the ability to give you space to say any fucking thing and never judged. And the dude never complained about shit. I would from time to time bullshit with him on Messenger and I'd see him in Zoom later that day and come to find out he had been in the hospital for the last four days and never said a thing about it. Like if I was in the hospital, there would be a pinned announcement on Dopey with a fucking GoFundMe attached to it, demanding to be a guest on this week's show. But him, you wouldn't even know. It was never about him. Probably the toughest dude I know, just unfazed at whatever life threw his way. And just to hear or see his posts about how many people saying he was one of the first people to reach out to me or how much he helped me like he was that dude. He didn't give a fuck where you were at. He had a way to shrug his shoulders at it and let you know he sees you. I remember hearing him on Dopey in the early days with that raspy voice, honesty, and his will to fight. Like that motherfucker did not give up for shit on his recovery. Shit was admirable. He also had a unique way of seeing all sides without taking sides and a subtle way of helping you see compassion. Funny as shit would be how starstruck people would get when they see him in Zoom and he would just give them that mean mug. What up? I'm going to fucking miss you, homie. And for the sake of keeping this argument going, although Twista might be the fastest rapper of all time, 
He is not the greatest, but I will say you made me realize he should be in my top 20. Barely, but he's still there. Love you, bro, and condolences to his fam and anyone who lost a real one when he left us. I know you're doing backflips and fucking sprints right now, wherever this next life is. Don't hurt anybody up there. Beautiful words about Brian Hot Wheels Connolly. And, and, and from such an unlikely source. And I am not putting Twista in my top 20 just to make it, just to keep it at a, a buck for all the kids out there. Now, before we get on with the show, I want to play the first voicemail that Brian sent in. And I remember it pretty well, um, the, the situation. Me and Chris were at my dad's house in the kitchen recording, and I had heard Brian's voicemails, and I was super excited to play them for Chris. So this is me and Chris listening to uh, Brian's first voicemail. It's actually, I think he sent two at once, so we're going to play both of them. You ready? I'm ready. Hey, Chris. Hey, Dave. Um, I listened to your podcast, and it gave me a couple of stories to think of here. Chris was just talking about how long he'd last if somebody put a rig full of coke in front of him. Well, I'm a bona fide heroin addict, and um. Last summer, I had about 97 days clean and was out playing some pokey bag. <laughs> and one of my fucking buddies gets off the train and goes, Hey, you want a bag of dope? And I immediately go, Yes. And was in the library shooting it 30 seconds later. So I know exactly what you mean, Chris, about if it's in front of you, not having a chance. I mean, how often is a bag of heroin wind up in front of you? Well, on that day, it did. And you're talking about DMT. Here's a funny-ass story about DMT. Me and my buddy discovered it back in high school. And, uh, well, we bought some. Because everybody says, man, this one time I was so fucked up, we used to go, oh, yeah? I'd like to pull some DMT out of the wallet. So when that shit ran its course, we had uh, gone to the west side of Chicago to get some heroin. And uh, we all did a rip of DMT. Nobody in the car wanted any more, so we chucked it out the window and it opened your <laughs> uh, Hold on, uh, hold on. Let's finish it here. You do the second one. Yeah. Alright. Yeah, this is Brian again. I just wanted to finish the DMT story. So we chucked it out the window because nobody wanted our brains exploding anymore talking to God on this shit. No. A couple days later, I just happened to think about it, man. It looked like a big bag of white powder, like a massive crack rock somebody might have driven over in the street. And I know damn well somebody afflicted picked that shit up, loaded up their glass dick, fired it up, blasted off, and might possibly still be talking to God this day. <laughs> I don't know. I've often wondered about the person that found a tooth bear. Two gram bag of DMT on the street. Thought it was crack and uh, got so high, real high, they never came down. Anyways, keep it up, man. Sometimes I can't listen to your shit because it's triggering, but sometimes I need to hear it because it's triggering. Keep up the good fight, man. <laughs> what is this dude's name? Brian. I gotta know more about this guy. Did he email us? No, he just sent voicemails. <laughs> I'm very curious. You don't know any deets, nothing? He sounds like, um, he sounds like he's big, and he's got a big black beard. Did you watch Office Space? 
the yeah. movie. Yeah. Do you remember his neighbor, the two chicks at one time? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. like what I have in my mind. Yeah, okay. Right? I can see that. I mean- <laughs> so that was Brian's first voicemail and, and me and Chris reacting. And I remember how much I just loved him flinging the DMT into the street. And we had him on a few times after that. And, and him and I became friends. And um, we were texting on Friday. And I'm, I'm so sad that he's gone. It's just, um, it's very hard. I don't want to speculate on what may or may not have happened to him. I know that he was in and out. And I know that, like he said, heroin was his drug of choice. He was often on IVs for his infections. And, and they would just put dope in the IV for him, like, like dealers. It's just such a fucking dangerous thing to be using. And I was talking to a friend of mine, uh, my friend Brad. A lot of you probably remember my friend Brad. He actually had come up with the idea of Dopey, and, and I stole it from him. And Brad and I were talking about this death, and Brad was saying to me, well, I'm sure a lot, I'm sure you know a lot of people in the audience are using and therefore will die. And I said to Brad, for whatever reason, it, for me, when I do the show, I feel like I'm talking to people who are in recovery, uh, who aren't using. And, and maybe I'm naive or, or maybe I'm just like projecting. But if you are using out there, please be careful. Please consider stopping because there is so much death, right? Uh, the guy who wrote that piece in Spin was a guy named Matt Thompson, who's also a member of the Dopey Nation, who's also a longtime listener, and he sent me some, um, some really scary statistics. And the statistics are that 40,000... Um, here we go. 40,000 people died of gunshot wounds in America last year, and that includes suicide. Uh, 43,000 died from road accidents, and that combined total doesn't reach the number of fatal overdoses in the same year. It was 106,000 people overdosed. And it's really not talked about enough. I don't talk about it enough. We don't talk about it enough. But as we lose our you know, our listeners, our Dopey Nation family, it's important that if you're using, you know that there's a good chance you're going to die. And we don't want that to happen. And there are so many things that you can do to safeguard your recovery, your mental health, your sobriety. Uh, one thing is is therapy. And this episode of Dopey is brought to you by BetterHelp. And I have benefited from therapy. And anyone struggling out there could totally benefit from therapy. When I feel uncertain, I find that therapy can show me where I've been on the right path, how to get on the right path, and how to stay on the right path. Because sometimes in life we're faced with really difficult choices and the right path isn't always clear. Therapy is awesome to give positive coping skills. It teaches you how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will be set up with a therapist and you can switch licensed therapists at any time for no additional charge. Let 
therapy beer map with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Dopey Podcast today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Dopey Podcast. Our guest today is a brilliant woman. Her name is Dr. Anna Lemke. She is the medical director of Stanford Addiction Medicine. She wrote a book called Dopamine Nation. I'm sure a lot of you think she got it from Dopey Nation. It seems that is not the case. This book is incredible, though. If you're look, it's called Dopamine Nation: Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, and it really it opened my eyes to a lot of information that I didn't have. But before we get to Dr. Lemke, Anna, I call her Anna, me and her are on good terms. I want to also remind you that this podcast is brought to you by The Phoenix, and The Phoenix is a great friend to Dopey. They are going to be at DopeyCon. They are all about having fun in recovery. If you're looking, and it's free, they have free stuff for you guys to do at the gym. Scott Wick, who, who wrote the beautiful words about Brian, he's an avid pickleball player. The Phoenix has free pickleball for you guys to play. They have free CrossFit classes to get you guys in shape. They have music events, art events, events where addicts and alcoholics in recovery get together. Check them out at thephoenix.org forward slash dopey. And, and it's very important that you go. Go to thephoenix.org forward slash dopey and be part of this movement. It is free. All that the Phoenix requires of you is 48 hours. Go now to thephoenix.org forward slash dopey and check out all the amazing stuff the Phoenix has going on. And also see them at DopeyCon. Yeah, tickets are going to be on sale any second. It's just been such a rough week with uh, all this death and anniversaries of death. But good things are coming. Here is Dr. Anna Lemke for you. I'm on the Zoom, and we don't, I mean, I've, I've gotten to the point where I'm not doing Zooms, but because you're so important to me, you know, and to the world, but I, I know some people don't like it when I say they're important to the world, but I think you're very important yeah. to the world. Okay. And and I'm on the <laughs> I'm on the Zoom with Dr. Anna Lemke, who wrote a bunch of books. I just finished Dopamine Nation. Dr. Lemke is a psychiatrist. You are the chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic at Stanford, and you specialize in the opioid epidemic. And, and this book is so cool. Like, I think the voice of the book is just incredible. And I think how accessible it is, is really amazing. So thank you for coming on and thank you for writing this book. Oh, well, well, thank you. And thank you to all the uh, Dopey Nation listeners out there. I'm really honored to be here. And, uh, you know, you guys, I think I've learned as much from my patients as I have uh, taught them, probably more. I've learned more from them than I've taught them. So I'm excited to be here. Nice. And we have to make sure that the Dopey Nation knows that Dopamine Nation, even though it's very crestfallen that I say this, Dopamine Nation was not <laughs> named after the Dopey Nation. But that's okay. <laughs> but could have been. But could have been. <laughs> it could have happened in some sort of osmosis dream. Um, right. How yeah. did you get into addiction studies? 
Great question. I originally avoided treating patients with addiction because I didn't learn anything about it in medical school. So I didn't graduate with, with an understanding of how to intervene. Even in my psychiatry residency, I actually didn't get much training in addiction. I was trained, you know, 20, 30 years ago when it was really considered a moral disease, a social disease, but not, not the purview of medical doctors. Also, addiction runs in my family, um, and I had what we call some negative counter-transference toward patients with addiction, a kind of sense of it's hopeless, you can never help them, um, so don't even go there. But what happened was that I was seeing this patient in weekly psychotherapy, and we talked about every single conversation she'd ever had with her mother. We talked about all of her inner feelings, her inner child, blah, blah, blah. And then one day, about six months into her care, her her brother called me and said that she'd been in a rollover car accident. And I said, oh my goodness, that, that's terrible. What happened? He said, well, she's been using again. And I said, using? Using what? And he said, using heroin. Isn't that what you've been treating her for? And it was in that moment that I realized, oh my gosh, I'm a terrible psychiatrist. <laughs> and you know, it was like, like yes. and of course she hadn't, she hadn't ever you know, admitted to using, but, uh, but it wasn't her job to do that. It was my job to explore that aspect of her life, to ask her questions in a skilled way that would make her feel comfortable opening up. And, you know, that, that was really a huge turning point in my career. And this was about 25 years ago. And I realized, well, I better learn something about addiction because otherwise out of ignorance, I'm going to be harming people. And then, then that was the beginning of a whole journey. Wow. I, I have so many, and she died. She did not die. She survived, but she never came to see me again, understandably. Wow. That's interesting. I wonder what happened to her. If you're listening, if you were ever Dr. Anna Lemke's patient and had a rollover (laughs) car accident, please write in to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. I have a lot of questions before we even talk about the book. When, When you're treating opiate addicts or any addicts or alcoholics, like what, like what's the strategy? Like, how do you even look at it? Because when I was in active addiction and I saw a therapist, I wanted them to fix me and they didn't do it. You know, so how do what do you do? <laughs> well, you know, I see it as a complex biopsychosocial disease. So I think conceptualizing it as a disease using this disease model framework is the best framework for our times. And so I really do see it that way. I talk about it that way. I talk about the basic neuroscience of what's happening in the brain, how people get caught up in this, you know, dopamine vortex such that they lose the ability to choose. I mean, I really see it as, you know, the hijacking our brain's reward pathways. And that's kind of where it all begins. And I think that's a nice model because, you know, when people relapse, it's not like, oh no, you know, how, what do we say now? Instead, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry for your relapse. Just like I would say to a patient who had cancer, uh, you know, who had a recurrence of their cancer. Oh, my goodness, I'm so sorry about, uh, you know, the recurrence of your cancer. So we keep it in a kind of a really empathic mode. Uh, But at the same time, you know, holding patients accountable, setting specific goals, uh, making sure that patients know that although it's a disease um, and a very difficult one at that, that there are still things that they can do to uh, fight their disease and that I will help them to the best of my ability to, to fight their disease. It's so hard. I've always struggled with the disease model because, I mean, I come from a 12-step background and I, I kind of drill it into my head. If I'm doing seven things, it's like almost impossible for me to relapse. 
you know, if I'm calling somebody every day, if I'm going to meetings, if I'm working with a sponsor, if I have sponsees, if I'm doing, if I'm in the steps, relapse is almost impossible. Like it's, but with cancer, you can't. You're too busy. Right, exactly. (laughs) Well, yeah, you're too busy. But, you know, I was thinking about that this morning, like the will I would have to put in to use, but I could do it. You know what I mean? Like to will myself into it. But with cancer, you can't, you can't defend against cancer in the same Mm -hmm. sort of way. And I know that the 12 steps impacted you. And do you suggest that to your patients? Oh, absolutely. So I think that the 12 steps has really figured out some fundamental aspects of, of addiction. Um, Number one, the sober social network you know, the spiritual pathway piece, the being of service piece, the being a smaller part of a greater whole, working for a higher good. You know, we talk about the disease model and the the neuroscience, but at the end of the day, we are not rats. We, at some point, we maybe can't stop using on our own, but we can reach out for help. And, And that's the kind of help you know, that others can give us that is so incredibly powerful and that we can then subsequently pass on. So even though I really emphasize the neuroscience and disease model, I also really think that the spiritual pathway and spiritual practices is huge in recovery. And that's something that maybe someday neuroscience will will crack the code on that. But right now we don't understand it beyond knowing that that it works. I know. It's so crazy. It's such a a strange thing. And in your book, I listened to your book on audio and I have to say your voice is incredible. All right. You have an, you have an incredible voice. (laughs) It's so soothing uh, and so nice to spend time with you in my headphones. And then one thing you do do in reading the book is you do voices. And one of the voices you do is Jacob, the Middle East. uh, Is he Middle Eastern? Your voice is. No. Well, then your voice is terrible, doctor. It's terrible. (laughs) Yeah, he's Eastern European. Yeah, he has a shade of Latka from Taxi. A shade shade of Andy Kaufman. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And he was Eastern European. But now Jacob was a sex addict and he had... He made himself a masturbation machine, which was just astounding to listen to. And when you're helping him, you actually suggest that he gets down on his knees and pray. Right. And, and it was like, wow. You know what I mean? I've, I Like, how often do you suggest that a client does that? And is it is that a thing psychiatrists do? So I would say in general, that is not a thing that psychiatrists do. But that is a thing that. I have come to suggest to certain patients who I feel have a worldview or an upbringing or a framework that would allow them to be receptive to it. It's not something that I would do with a sworn atheist who, you know, would would feel very uncomfortable with that. But but Jacob was raised Catholic. You know, he he was raised in that tradition. He often he was very involved in 12 steps. He talked about spirituality. So it wasn't, you know, out of left field for me to bring that into the work that we did together. But I will say that it's also probably not typical. And this is one of the really sad things about mental health treatment is that doctors, even doctors who themselves um, have some kind of spiritual practice or, or are informed by some kind of faith are incredibly uncomfortable talking about spirituality with their patients, even when the patient has a spiritual practice. So it's so taboo in medicine and such a shame because there's actually a lot of data showing that people who actively participate 
in religious slash spiritual practices have decreased rates of addiction. And we know from many, many people who get into recovery, especially through the 12-step, that the spiritual transformation is key for them. So it's too bad that we're so, um, you know, it's so taboo. Spiritually phobic or or just un- yeah. unwilling. I know that I was raised Jewish in Manhattan, but atheist Jew, you know what I mean? Like not just culturally right. Jewish, like not basically right. not Jewish, but totally Jewish at the same right. time. And, um, yeah. and, and I was raised, you know, <laughs> without God. The only thing I learned in, in Hebrew school was that Israeli tanks were better than Jordanian tanks and <laughs> irrigation of Israel was so incredible and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But when I got to 12 step, I was so desperate that I just did whatever I was told because I, I had failed so much. And now when right. I try to work with people, I, 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 you, you, I, I suggest prayer. But but when right. they look at me, I mean, my father, he listens to the show religiously and he always tells me how stupid I am that that I have a, a God. You know what I mean? Even though my God isn't yeah. that much different than his non-God, my God is based right. on <laughs> results and suggestions and willingness, basically. Right. Yeah. But so yeah. what do you do? Because Jacob was a good and I want to the, the dopey nation needs to hear about Jacob and his masturbation machine. It's too good not mm-hmm. to really get mm-hmm. in there. But what mm-hmm. do you do mm-hmm. when someone doesn't have any kind of spiritual background? Ha- like, what are some techniques that, that are effective when you have clients that, that, are, that are struggling to get through something? Yeah, well, I, I always try to be really transparent with my patients. And at the end of the day, I'm a pragmatist. Like, I care about what works. So the way that I will often enter into this is to say to patients, you know, you have tried just about everything except for a spiritual pathway. So why don't you just try it? Just do an experiment, right? Pray or, you know, um, do meditate or, I don't know, go to some kind of, you know, grove in the woods and commune with nature and the universe. Just give it a try and see what happens. Because, you know, the worst that can happen is that it does nothing for you. But you might find that it is the very thing that you need in order to get to where you want to go. And I mean, I have a whole, like, I have a whole theory about how it works in the brain. So, you know, even if you don't believe that there is some kind of, you know, uh, higher power behind all this that we're engaged in, uh, in our human existence, It could be that just from a functional perspective, that is from an evolutionary and a functional perspective, it seems that we are wired for spirituality and that in neglecting this part of our brain, we're really allowing it to atrophy in a way that ultimately uh, makes us uh, less able to flourish and thrive. And so by reactivating this part of our brains, you know, we're potentially uh, making ourselves much healthier. That's what I believe, independent of whether or not uh, the higher power actually exists. That's interesting because it also goes in line with a lot of other things in the book in terms of being in touch with our roots. If it's in exercise, if it's in, you know, pain, if it's like it, what first of all, what makes you think that we are hard, hardwired for a higher power? Let's just start there because I'm. It's conf- I, I want to hear the theory. Sure. Well, first of all, I mean, if you look at all human civilizations since the beginning of recorded time, they have almost always been theistic. There is some notion of a power greater than than ourselves. And that's even if you go back to like classical ancient Greece, 
you know, where people think, oh, those people, they were so smart and they were so mathematical and they didn't do this crazy God thing until Jesus came along and kind of messed everything up. You know, if you're an atheist, that's actually not true. Like Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, they all believed in God or at least talked like they did. But then they had sort of another sort of rationalistic, uh, materialistic way of thinking about other problems. But there was always this sense that the entire world was permeated with God. Now you fast forward 2000 years, we're really living in a time in human history when for the very first time, you've got people who, who do not believe that there is some kind of higher power that's that's playing some important role in governing the universe and and human lives. So it's an unprecedented time, uh, in, and it you know sharply correlates with science, innovation, technology, and really at the end of the day, our ability to control our lived experience, to control the temperature, to control repro- reproductivity, to control you know uh, the uh, life and death. And of course, key to a whole bunch of psychopathology, including foremost addiction, and this is really the genius, another aspect of the genius of the big book, is that this kind of narcissistic notion of locus of control, that like we think we can control everything. And so we try to do that until our lives become unmanageable. And we realize that it is our very efforts to control that contribute to uh, so much of the suffering uh, that we experience in our lives. And so the antidote to that really is the surrender and the spiritual pivot. And I believe what, what what's happening in our brains is that we're re-engaging with ancient wiring that evolved over millions of years of evolution that allowed for survival. The other uh, you know, data point for that is that you know, when people have epileptiform seizures or when people become manic or when they have you know, uh, psychotic delusions, they will very often that those will have some kind of spiritual content, right? Now, you could then take that and say, see, it's just in the brain and there's no such thing as God. And it's just like these, you know, a set of neurons that gets firing and it's just crazy, you know, but that's, that's not true. I mean, another way to look at that and says, well, the wiring is there, just like we have wiring in our brainstem to allow us to breathe. We have wiring in our prefrontal cortex that allows for future planning. So the wiring is there. And it's there for a purpose. It's there because it's it evolved. It's adaptive. We, you know, we if we if it weren't useful, our, we would have gotten rid of it for the most part. So it's not vestigial. It's still useful and important. And we're neglecting it in the modern world. And we're 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 too you know we're too prideful. What's so interesting to me about atheism is that, and by the way, I I, I should emphasize like the state of what we believe is also can be dynamic. Like one day I'll wake up and I'm like, God exists. Another way I wake up, I'm like, I have no idea. You know, I mean, it's, you don't have to, it doesn't have to be so firmly fixed, right? We can all wonder. And I think the reason most people have the, the pain and the problem or my father's problem with, with God is because of all of the unpleasantness associated right. with organized religion and conflict and war and disagreements based on ideology as opposed to the beauty of right. something greater than yourself. They're totally not right. the same thing. Mm-hmm. And yet when you hear God, you think Jesus, you think Islam, you think right. Judaism, right. you think these things as opposed to this oneness, you know, but that let's not get down some crazy hole here. Let's get to the masturbation machine. Uh, okay. <laughs> so let's start with Jacob's okay. masturbation machine. Cause it's too lurid mm-hmm. and, and tantalizing not to talk about. So Jacob is a great guy. He is a kind and loving parent and spouse. He's also a scientist and engineer, 
by the way, he gave me permission to tell his story in the book using, uh, you know, a different name and hiding some demographic stuff to disguise his identity. But he did that because he was hoping his story would help others. And essentially, you know, his brain works like an engineering brain as as he uh, became compulsively addicted to pornography and masturbation. It occurred to him that maybe he could make a machine that would uh, accomplish the task as well as or better than what he could do with his hand. And so that's what he did. You know, the original prototype was like a record player attached to this cord and a cloth, and he could adjust the speed of the record, et cetera. Incredible. And eventually, it's incredible yeah, that he over didn't time, become like a, a sex machine billionaire, but it didn't go that way for Jacob. Right. right. <laughs> no, he did not. And, you know, I think one of his biggest fears is, of course, eventually he ended up you know, hooking it, making a much more advanced prototype using an advanced stereo system than ultimately engaging in chat rooms and allowing people to control it through the chat rooms. I mean, you know, really scary, destructive stuff way outside of his his goals and values. And eventually he was able to get into recovery through a combination of, you know, the 12 steps and some spiritual practices and just his amazing courage and fortitude and work Frankly, it's a lot of work. Recovery is a lot it's of all work. Of it. So, um, yeah, it, it is. It's 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 a hard but worthwhile road. Yeah. So that's his story. He's a wonderful person. I love that. With him, the first thing was he. You knew that he was hoping that you would have been a man because he was fearful to admit such a. You know, it's seemingly so innocuous, but Jacob lost his his agency. All he could do yes. was this. And, right. and and I found it to be, first of all, just the way you worked with him and the way you told his story, I just thought it really did an amazing job of leveling the playing field of addiction in general. That addiction is about losing agency and, and, right. and recovery is about willingness. And you talked about him in the hotel room you know, with the TV mm -hmm. and he would put post-it notes on everything and he would succumb over and over. But my, I think my favorite thing about Jacob and the story is how radical honesty was mm. his way out with, with, at the end, you know, like when his wife found the shower ring missing right. and, uh, mm -hmm. and he didn't want to tell her Right. But he practiced radical honesty and she forgave him. Right. And it's just it was it's just such an amazing story. And I think the way you tell it is just incredibly beautiful. Oh, I you. I appreciate that. And so let's get to some uh, these are not hard hitting questions. Why don't you tell uh, <laughs> Dopey Nation about about radical honesty and how it works? Yeah. So radical honesty is something that I actually learned from my patients in long term recovery. Whether they got into recovery through the 12 steps or by some other means, there was this recurring theme of truth telling, that they had to tell the truth about all things large and small, not just about their using and their addiction, but like what they had for breakfast, why they were late for the meeting, where they were going, who they were with, what somebody said, what they didn't say. And I got really curious about that because I thought to myself, wow, you know, why is that, that this kind of radical, radical honesty or telling, telling the truth about everything is important to maintaining recovery. And after, you know, doing some research, I, I concluded that it works on many different levels. One of the first and important ways that it works is that it tr promotes true intimacy. So we talk about intimacy or connection to other humans as being the true antidote to addiction, you know, the true cure, the, the, the honest substitute. But we don't much talk about how to get there. 
And what I see in my work is that what breaks relationships and families apart more than relapse or the using itself is the dishonesty around using. And yet when we are honest with our loved ones about what, what's going on for us, they will often take us in and embrace us and walk that journey with us. And so it promotes this kind of incredible uh, intimacy, but we don't think it's going to do that. We think that when we tell people about all of our mistakes and and selfishness that they're going to like go running away and we'll be alone. So it's very, very paradoxical and it's very hard to do in real time for all of us, not just people in recovery from severe addiction. It's really hard to tell the truth about like how we have been selfish or um, how we're not as great as we like to think we are in our own minds. So that that's one of the ways that it works, but it works on many different levels. As I talk about in the book, it also, I think it activates the prefrontal cortex the prefrontal cortex is part of the reward pathway. It's like the brakes on the car. It allows us to recover agency over our deep limbic dopamine releasing structures that kind of become this sort of like runaway train uh, in terms of addiction. So it, it, many other ways. Yeah. The thing to me is that the way when we're not fully honest, we're, we're protecting our addiction and we don't even realize right. it. Like, like part right. of the reason Jacob didn't really want to tell his wife is because it's an, it's a back door. And, 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 and I, I think that another thing you talked about in the book is the habit of lying that we get right. into something where we, you, it's like, there was an old, I remember when I was a kid, there was a public service announcement that was like, when you tell one lie, it leads to another. Then you tell two <laughs> lies. I remember the whole song. I'm not going to sing it for you, yeah. but like, that's what happens when you start lying about anything and then all of a sudden there's yeah. a crack in the door and and you can lie right. about anything and everything right. and i think that radical honesty is such an important touchstone to recovery yeah and and and, yes, and it's and absolutely. it's like and anybody listening really like i think that's like top of the list I, although you do say on the top of your list and i think this is very interesting also that abstinence is number 1 in recovery and in this world of harm reduction and and you know fucking medical marijuana and ayahuasca and microdosing mushrooms how does that work for you with abstinence being because i think the quote uh recovery begins with abstinence abstinence resets the brain's reward pathway and with it our capacity to take joy and simpler pleasures right so you know the, basically with the, you know the neuroscience shows us that Dopamine is our reward and pleasure neurotransmitter, right? Things that are rewarding, whether a substance or behavior, release a lot of dopamine all at once in the reward pathway, a dedicated circuit in the brain. But that one of the driving forces for all living organisms is to return back to baseline or what neuroscientists call homeostasis. So that right after we do something that's reinforcing, our brains will uh, adapt or compensate by downregulating dopamine production and transmission, not just to baseline levels, but actually below baseline to this dopamine deficit state. That's that hangover, the craving, the withdrawal. And essentially what happens with repeated use is we kind of get stuck in that dopamine deficit state where now we're needing more and more, not to, not, not to get high and feel good, but just to level the balance and feel normal. And when we're not using, we're walking around with a pleasure pain balance tilted to the side of pain, experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal which are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, and craving. So the first step in recovery is restoring baseline homeostasis. And you know the, the way typically to do that is to abstain from our drug of choice long enough 
so that our brain gets the memo, oh, wait a minute, I'm not getting it from this external source anymore. I now just need to start upregulating and making it on my own. Now, caveats there are that we do believe that some people essentially end up with a kind of a broken balance and, and lose the plasticity to be able to restore homeostasis on their own. So we will use medications to help them reset the reward pathway. But the idea is that those medications are then in combination with other recovery work that they would do. So that's things like methadone maintenance or buprenorphine is to sort of give people a little bit of help restoring homeostasis and then having them engage in the kind of maintenance work. Sure. I, I was on methadone for many years and I needed to get off of it. You know what I mean? And and and, mm -hmm. and I yes. I mean, and that's not to say that everybody needs to get off of it because people who live effective lives on, on methadone, you don't want to disrupt their balance and you don't want to throw anybody right. into something that's wickedly not is homeostatic a word? Is that a word? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a word. Okay, good. Yeah. So something that's not wickedly homeostatic <laughs> is probably harmful. One of my, I mean, I really loved this whole book. One of my other favorite parts in it was the woman who is the stoner and like she's fucking, you know, hitting the shatter pen and hitting her volcano and she's <laughs> complaining about anxiety. And you're like, well, maybe you need right. to stop using THC. And she's like, well, I use it for anxiety. And then you start talking about giving it up. And and I was such a stoner. Like I loved smoking weed. I loved being stoned. I, I loved everything about it. And, and that was kind of the last thing I gave up was weed. But you talk about how, and I'd like you to talk about it. I don't want to say it for you in terms of like that withdrawal, right? That, that, right. that, 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 that the day that you stop smoking, you will feel anxious because you're not smoking and you're used to it. So, right. so like, and before you even answer though, with these people, with everybody out there now, Cali sober and weed being so available and, and harm reduction, what's your take on the heroin addict who is smoking weed as a as a harm reduction practice? I guess you don't have a moral stake in this thing. Yeah, I try not to, you know, be too judgmental or at least try to figure out where people are coming from. Everybody has their own unique situation. Absolutely. But I, but I will say that we see lots of patients who don't come in for addiction. They come in because they're anxious, depressed, they can't sleep, they can't concentrate. And what we discover, you know, in the course of learning about them is that they're smoking a lot of pot, right? Or they're drinking a lot of alcohol or they're not masturbating a lot or they're spending, you know, many hours a day playing video games. And 20 years ago, the first thing I would have done for a patient seeking help for depression, anxiety, insomnia was prescribe an antidepressant or prescribe an anxiolytic or recommend some kind of psychotherapy. The first thing I do now is actually recommend a trial of abstinence or a dopamine fast from their drug of choice, warning them that they'll feel worse before they feel better because they'll be in withdrawal. But if they can just abstain from their drug of choice for three to four weeks, what we see is about 80% of folks have vast improvement in all of the symptoms that brought them in in the first place without our having to do any other intervention. And this, by the way, is supported by a very famous study where a cohort of middle-aged men who were using alcohol in an addictive way and also met criteria for major depression were put in a hospital given no treatment but no access to alcohol. And what they discovered is that after four weeks, 80% of those men no longer met criteria for major depression. So their depression spontaneously resolved just by stopping drinking. And that's so, so important because we have the 
subjective sense in the immediate moment that these reinforcing substances and behaviors are actually alleviating depression, anxiety, insomnia, whatever it is. And the, the truth is that they are for the very short term, but not because they're treating an underlying disorder. They're just temporarily allowing for homeostasis. But in the long term, they're actually contributing to that chronic dopamine deficit state. And instead, what we need to do is see these substances and behaviors as actually drivers of our psychopathology. And then if we could just abstain for long enough so that our brains can get the memo that they need to start to upregulate dopamine and other feel-good neurotransmitters, then we will feel so much better just by abstaining for long enough to heal our brains. See, that I think that's so awesome. And, and it's almost, I'm sure people think it's like draconian. You know what I mean? Like, I'm sure people's response yeah. is like, it's just say no, but it isn't. It's like, it's like trying to figure out where somebody is at and not saying, well, it's okay if you smoke weed. And I'm not saying it isn't, but I'm saying let's figure out what's going on when there's nothing coming in. And, That's right. and, and I wouldn't say four weeks. I mean, for me, it took 90 days. Like four weeks out of four weeks out of weed, I still was very much craving weed. You know, I, I was I was very psychologically addicted to it. And I still miss it right. in a lot of ways. I just know that sure. I just, and I, I'm coming up on eight years, you know, totally absent and clean over whatever. Thank yeah. you. But the point is like, I needed time away from it to be right. able to feel good without anything. And I, and, and I think you right. illustrate that just so beautifully. The, the, the acronym for dopamine, did you come up with this? How did it hit you? Where was the inspiration? Were you really excited that you had come up with something so good? <laughs> well, thank you. I did come up with it. I think I was on a bike ride. I find for my own brain that if I can chunk information into some kind of acronym, then I can remember it better. And that's, by the way, an old medical school trick. So I'm I'm often coming up with acronyms. And yeah, so this the, the dopamine acronym, it's basically an acronym for a framework that we can use ourselves or that we can, uh, you know, providers can use in clinical care to sort of orient around compulsive overconsumption addiction. And I'm happy to go through it if you want me to. I really do. Okay, so the, the D stands for data. And this is where we just ask our patients to tell us what they're using, how much, and how often. So we're really just focused on facts, quantity, and frequency. And this is a nice entry point because we're not talking about like judgment-laden you know, consequences or and we're not bringing judgment. We're just, hey, what are you using? How much and how often? And this serves two important functions. Number one, I get the information. But number two, you get the information. Because when you have to say out loud uh, what you're using, how much and how often, it becomes real right. in a way it's not when, when it's just so. That, and you know that awareness is really the first step. And, you know, I talk about in Dopamination, I talk about my own um, addiction to romance novels and how I really didn't see what was happening to me until I did a role play with a student where I had to be the patient. He said, what, you know, what behavior do you want to change? I said, oh, I have this late night reading habit that I'd like to change. And the next day I couldn't unsee it, right? I was like, oh, wow, I really do want to change that. But prior to telling another human being, I really didn't see it. You know, it was just sort of like hiding in this corner. So data is for that. O is for objectives. This is where we explore with patients why they use and people, you know, do irrational things for rational reasons initially. They only become irrational later as we get caught up. 
uh, in the vortex. This is where we say, you know, why do you use it? People use usually for one of two reasons, either to have fun or to solve a problem. That problem can be very wide ranging from self-medication, as we talked about, to loneliness, boredom, you name it. Uh, the P stands for problems associated with use. And it's no coincidence that we ask them to talk about the problems after we ask them to talk about their O or objectives for use. Because the problems always come downstream and you want that to be forefront in their minds. As you go into the A of the dopamine acronym, which stands for abstinence, which has to do with inviting them in to try this dopamine faster. And the problems, the, the problems are the consequences, Right. The problems are the consequences. They're often hidden and insidious. The ways in which we become more depressed, more anxious, less able to sleep, less happy. But then we identify the drug as being the treatment for that when in fact the drug is causing or exacerbating that problem. It's so insidious, we don't see it. And that is a big part of the problem. So then the abstinence trial is, hey, can you abstain for four weeks? Now, why do we say four weeks? Believe it or not, on average, even for severely addicted people, four weeks is enough time to begin to reset the reward pathways and for people to feel better. And that's such an impactful moment because when people abstain long enough to feel better, I no longer have to persuade them that they should try, have a different relationship with their drug of choice. They are now motivated because they feel better. But this has to come with a big, big warning sign, which is you will feel worse before you feel better. But that worse feeling is not what you're going to be left with. It's withdrawal mediated. So if you can just get through those 10 to 14 days, I know it feels interminable, but you will come out the other side and feel better. And if you don't feel better, and this is really important, if you don't feel better, that's also really useful information for us, right? Because it tells us, okay, the drug use is not primarily driving the psychopathology. Right. And, and then what do you suggest in the abstinence period that they do to get through it, to get through the discomfort, to get through the uncomfortability, to get through the pain. Like, like when someone's like right. in that mode, what do you say to do? Yeah. Well, this is the M. This is where the M comes in. Yes. M stands for mindfulness. Okay. Uh, and this is where we learn, we learn to observe our thoughts and feelings without judgment, but also without running away from it. So again, a lot of psychoeducation around like thoughts come and thoughts go, cravings come and cravings go. And you can be an observer of your subjective experience, a curious and interested and observer without reacting to those thoughts and feelings. And that's a very novel concept. And we can get better at that with practice. The other thing that I recommend is hormesis or intentional asceticism. This is where we encourage patients to intentionally do something that's more painful than the pain of withdrawal. Like if they're feeling craving, they could take an ice cold uh, shower or they could go on a long walk and exhaust themselves, or they could do sit-ups, or they could pray or meditate. So something that's effortful, that actually helps increase dopamine production and firing as an antidote to their dopamine deficit state. And there's a whole science around this. Hormesis is a Greek word. It means to set in motion. And it, it's a science that shows that when an organism is exposed to mild to moderate doses of a painful stimulus, it actually upregulates dopamine. Uh, the I of the acronym stands for insight. This is one of my favorite things about this work. People will come back four weeks later having abstained and they'll be like, Dr. Lemke, you wouldn't believe it. I feel so much better. And they're so surprised, you know, and I just love it because then I just go, oh, really cool. Tell me about it. So this kind of idea that when we're chasing dopamine, we really lose a sense of cause and effect. And it's only when we get some distance from our drug of choice that we're able to look back 
and say, wow, I can't, I can't believe I invested so much time, energy, money into that drug. I, I almost don't even recognize that person. So that's always a really interesting and important moment, that sort of insight moment, that aha moment. That N stands for next steps. This is where we say, okay, you feel better or you don't feel better, but if you did feel better, you know, what now? Do you want to continue to abstain or do you want to go back to using? First time around, the majority of folks, frankly, want to go back to using. So then we say, okay, let's make a plan for moderation, right? And then a lot of the devil's in the details here. When are you going to use? How much? How often? How are you going to keep track? How are you going to embrace radical honesties with me, with me, with yourself, so that you're not lying about what we're using? And then they just see how it goes. And that's the E for experiment. It's an experiment, yeah. right? We're all li- we're living the experiment of our lives. Why not experiment? See what works and see what doesn't. Some people will be successful for a while and gradually go back to using, okay, then maybe they need abstinence. Some people will be unsuccessful immediately, what we sometimes call the abstinence violation syndrome. They're immediately binging. That's what happened to me after I gave up romance novels for four weeks. I felt so much better and then had like a binge weekend and I was like, oh, that didn't work and then decided to commit to a year of abstinence. For me, it was helpful to have a time frame. You know, a very rare number of people with with addiction can go back to using in moderation, but I tell you, it's quite rare. And in general, what people have to do is go through this cycle before they realize, you know what, like I, I'm going to abstain. Yeah. You know, I was a heroin addict and I had stopped doing heroin and I really wanted to stay smoking pot. And, and Chris, yeah. who started the show with me and who died was like, well, I know some people who are heroin addicts and now they just drink or they just smoke pot. And, and the I think the touchstone he said was, if you ever ever find yourself uh, doing heroin again, you know you can't smoke pot. <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> and, then, and then around, and I, I, I wound up doing heroin, I think one more time, I, but I did wind up on benzos again and, and, and kind of opiates mm-hmm. here and there. But there was another guy that we knew, same thing, and he was drinking successfully and he was one of the first people in our community to die so it's like the experiment i think is a really interesting word i know that when i got sober this time the thing that i told myself i was 41 when i got sober and i said to myself if i'm lucky i'll live to 82 and i've spent half of my life using as much as i could and this is what i have and i was a waiter and I, I was subletting my apartment and I was separated from my family. And I was like, what if I actually take all these suggestions as an experiment? You know, what would right. my life look right. like? And now yeah. I'm not a waiter and I'm with here, my family here it is. and here we are. And, yeah. But it, it, it right. it's an here experiment. Yeah. It's an experiment. I love that. Yeah. Now, I want to know about romance novels. I want to know what yeah. happened after the year. What happened after the year? So let me just say, so what happened, well, for just like, okay, so I gave up, I gave up romance novels for a month just to get, get back to it. I had, um, it, w- what surprised me was the extent of my physical withdrawal, the extent of restlessness and insomnia that I had, which people don't usually think you can get with behavioral or process addictions, but which you really can, especially if it involves, you know, uh, masturbation, because that's a very physiologic thing. But by four weeks, I felt a heck of a lot better. I thought, oh, I'll, I'll read a romance novel. Binged that whole weekend. And for me, that just meant like every free moment I was reading, I stayed up late reading. I was groggy the next day. And I've got kids, a family, patients who are like my kids, you know, my family. So I, I went to work on Monday and it was like, oh, that was a mess. Like, and I felt groggy and hungover. So I committed to abstaining from for a whole year from the entire behavior. Let me just say all of the behaviors. And um, it went really well. 
And then I decided after a year, well, I think I'm going to try this again. And really, really interesting. What happened was I got zero pleasure from it. So whatever like that neural circuit was, I seemed to have depleted or exhausted it. I had euphoric recall for how good it would be. But every time I went back to trying to read a romance novel, it was never any good. And in fact, I immediately felt bad. And of course, that's completely reminiscent of patients addicted to drugs and alcohol, right? This idea that it's going to be really good. And then you use and it's like terrible. And you say, I'm not going to do that again. And then you know, a day later, you're like, oh, it's going to be really good. If only. <laughs> so there's this, again, the way that the brain adapts and the drug kind of turns on us. I did experience that. So now I don't read romance novels. I read a lot of mysteries, though. How many, how many mysteries are you reading? Not I the mean, same it is kind my of gr- way. No. See, that's it. I, I don't, what, that, like the romance novels just sucked me in. Um, but I don't have that with other books. And I read I read a lot of different kinds of books. I mean, I enjoy, I can still enjoy reading, which is nice. I just don't read those books well, anymore. What it reminds me of is an old cliche, which is uh, a head full of AA and a belly full of beer. Like, does it work out? Like, And it seems like right. you, had got, you had gotten to that place around romance novels so that when you picked it up, you had all of this, you know, experience of 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 getting also through, you know, to the other side where you, where you kind of probably looked at yourself and saw what you were about. And if you're going down that path, you're like, I don't want to be doing this. But another thing I find really interesting, I'm sure you're familiar with Dr. Uh, Gabor Mate and, uh, and his addiction to classical music purchasing. And I think as, as a heroin addict, I think it's hysterical that you doctors need to be addicted to romance (laughs) novels and buying (laughs) classical CDs. I think it's, um, I love it. But on this, on the other hand, do people ever like, come on, Dr. Lemke, you weren't addicted to romance novels. Does anybody give you the business for that or no? Yeah. I mean, and I think that's, you know, it's appropriate to do that pushback a little bit because like I wasn't a life threatening addiction. Right. I never, you know, it was, but I think my, my point in, in, I mean, it really did happen to me. Like, like I developed tolerance. I went from the twilight saga to 50 shades of gray. I love, I love I the whole chain thing. reader. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, it, it followed that same trajectory. And so the point I'm trying to make really is that we, we all have a vulnerability to addiction because we all have you know, the same brain reward pathways. And importantly for me, I thought that I just didn't inherit the addiction gene because I never liked alcohol or other drugs. They just didn't do anything for me. But the truth is I just hadn't yet encountered my drug of choice. And when I did, you know, a Kindle plus romance novels, I was off and running. So what I'm trying to do is just sort of say like, this is endemic in the human population. We can all relate to the phenomenon of addiction to some degree, especially now when we're living in this world that's actually absolutely saturated with high reward, cheap sources of dopamine. Almost every aspect of human life has now become drugified in some way, making us all more vulnerable to this problem. Absolutely. I I find myself so, I don't like to use the word addicted, but so addicted to the phone, like so, so hyper-focused on it craving it like we went to a concert right. last night and i was craving instagram like while i'm at yeah. the con i, I felt it right and, you know i i didn't right. i didn't open it up because i was interested in what people's right. responses to whatever was so right. so right. as somebody who is an expert on this stuff how accurate is phone addiction like how 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 real is it in in the spectrum of stuff oh, yeah 
I mean, you know, our, our phones are absolutely a drug. Uh, there's no doubt about it, you know, and the stuff that we get from our phones, as well as the device itself, it causes dopamine to be released in the very same reward pathway uh, that that drugs and alcohol trigger. Uh, the phenomenology of addiction that we observe with drugs and alcohol, where people start out using to have fun or solve a problem. If it works, they go back, they use more, they develop tolerance, they need more in more potent forms. Now they're sacrificing, you know, life and limb to get their drug to the exclusion of anything else. We see that with phones and with the things that people do on phones, social media, online shopping, online pornography, video games, uh, you know, YouTube, you name it. We have people coming in despondent, anxious, suicidal, because they can't stop using their phones. Now, the vast majority of people who drink alcohol will not get addicted to alcohol. It's about 10 to 20% lifetime prevalence of alcohol addiction. And the same thing is true with social media or video games. You know, the, most people who engage in those activities are not going to end up with a life-threatening addiction, but a subset of individuals will. Those for whom that is their particular lock, a lock and key will just be off and running and will not actually, or will just, I will say, have great difficulty uh, moderating or modulating their use. So we need to have a really healthy respect for the addictive nature of digital media and digital technology in general. I appreciate that. And we have some members in our community who were, I'm sure we have members of our community who were sex addicts and, um, and food addicts. But something that we never really discuss, we always just kind of skim the surface, is gambling. Do you yeah. treat any gambling addicts? And, and is it the same? Is it different? How, how, what is it about in your experience? Yeah, I mean, it's the same exact phenomenology. It's probably the exact same, you know, changes in the brain's reward pathway. We treat gambling addiction. And of course, gambling addiction has exploded since 2001 with the advent of the smartphone and the ability to have 24-7 access. Now that sports betting has become legal in a handful of states, you know, those states have seen a like a 300 to 500 percent increase in calls to pathological gambling hotlines. I mean, it's just very clear that one of the biggest risk factors for any addiction is simple access to that drug. If you have more access, you're more likely to use. If you use more, you're more likely to get addicted. It's brain exposure. These substances and behaviors are in and of themselves inherently addictive. If we expose our brain to them, we change our brains over time so that we get into this hedonic treadmill, this, this addiction vortex. And then it's very hard to pull ourselves up. And if we have a vulnerability uh, to that specific type of psychopathology, it can become life-threatening. It's a shame because I remember as a using addict, how, and also just as somebody who was you know, I guess participating in drug use, legalization, decriminalization seemed to be the answer for everything. And in some ways, you, I definitely don't want to see drug addicts be punished for their illness. But in other ways, like you just said, availability increases the addiction. So what do you do? Like, it, it, you know what I'm yeah. saying? Like, it, it's a real yes. crossroads, isn't it? We don't have an answer yeah, to this, really, do we? Yes. No, no, I certainly don't. I mean, I will say decriminalization of certain drugs makes a lot of sense if criminalization leads to arrest of certain groups without really changing behavior or leading to individual or societal improvement. On the other hand, uh, we must as a society protect vulnerable individuals from highly addictive substances and behaviors. That means children. That means people with co-occurring mental illness. 
Um, that means people with addiction. And to say that, like, you know, we have to protect their right to use drugs. Well, where does that then essentially become a kind of societal abandonment of somebody who has a terrible disease? It's a deep question. We'll answer that question next time you come on Dopey. But I want to know one last thing before uh, okay. before you go, which is what has the reaction been to the book and and how have you seen your work impact our community? Oh, well, thank you. So, you know, uh, I've been shocked at the reaction. This is a book that basically says pain is good for you. And I, I did not think it would be a, a message that would resonate, abstain, maintain, seek out pain. But I've been, it's amazing. It's been, uh, you know, as you know, it's been, a, it's been an international bestseller. I've gotten, you know, emails from people all over the world. And it's just been an incredible honor for me to be able to interact with people that I never would have been able to interact with otherwise. It's been very meaningful. You know, my opportunity to teach them what I've learned over 20 plus years of treating patients with addiction, who, by the way, I hold out as modern day prophets for uh, this addictogenic world. Well, I think that's really beautiful. Do you think we talked enough about pain? Well, we touched on it enough to give folks, and we didn't really get too much into neuroscience, but I think, I think we, uh, we, you know, we, we, we got started. All right. Well, listen, Dr. Lemke, it's, it's such a joy to talk to you. It's such an honor to meet you. Yes, Likewise. And, um, let's try to do it again. Six months. What do you yeah, say? That sounds, You're down? Let's do it. Six yep, months. I'm down for that. We're starting with yes. pain. And what, what's coming for Dr. Anna Lemke? What's coming next? Well, I'm trying, I'm trying to make a, like a workbook slash handbook with using the dopamine acronym. There are a lot of, um, it's interesting that a lot of people have made workbooks out there, but I wasn't involved in any of those. They're like copycats or something. I, I don't know. I hope they're helpful to people, but I'm going to try to make a kind of a, a definitive handbook or slash workbook that people can maybe use, you know, as more of an interactive manual. So that's what's next. So you're saying people have ripped off your work they're making booklets based on your work, and you so graciously say you hope that's helping somebody. I commend you, Doctor. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're a good yeah, woman. That's yeah. good. That's good. <laughs> better, you're better than it, I am. Well, it's just about getting, you know, getting the message out there and trying to help people. That's the main thing. No, it's amazing. And uh, and where can people find you and your work? You will not be surprised to learn that I am not on social media because I know that I couldn't handle it, and I. I'm, I barely even turn my smartphone on just because I, again, I would become obsessed with it. So I manage that by not using it. Amazing. Thank you so much, doctor. I really, really, really enjoyed this conversation and love your book. Oh, thank you. And I hope your dad won't be mad that we talked about him on the show. No, he's on the show all the time. He lives to be mentioned on the show. He loves it. So he will not be mad. He will, please. (laughs) Okay. He loves the attention. Uh, okay, good. Thank you, doctor. Have a wonderful day. And, uh, I appreciate your time. You're welcome. Bye-bye. So much good stuff from, uh, Dr. Anna Lemke. Really, really, really. I was so honored to talk to her and I actually had found out about Brian, I don't know, like an hour before I got on the call with her and I wasn't sure like what, to do if I, a part of me wanted to talk to her about Brian and process because she's such a talented psychotherapist, but I, I wanted to hear about the book. I loved hearing about her, her acronym for dopamine, the neurochemistry of cravings, how withdrawal works. 
uh, her feeling about abstinence as the first line of treatment for depression rather than SSRIs or benzos. I, I just thought she was really, really cool. And it's two sides of a coin when we have a death announcement on the show and a doctor who's fighting addiction. So I just want to say again how appreciative I am to people like Dr. Lemke who are fighting the good fight and trying to educate addicts and addicts' families and friends for how to understand addiction and, and, and different things that we can do. So check out Dopamine Nation. It's available everywhere. It was a New York Times bestseller. It's, it's, it's really, really totally worth reading. So I'm going to play Brian's first real appearance on the show with me and Chris. We call him up. I have to say I'm such a jerk on this show. So before you hear it, just know I hear myself. I know what a jerk I was on the show. Now here is me, Chris, and Hot Wheels back in the day. Wait, wait, before we, wait, 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 can I ask you something, Hot Wheels, before you get started? Most certainly, you can ask me anything. Okay, so if you're quadriplegic, are you an IV user? Yes, I am. How do you fix yourself? Where there's a will, there's a fucking way, dog. Um, there you go. Food, and I use my mouth and tongue to dry it up into the spike and use my mouth and tongue to find the vein and push the plunger down. Goddamn. No way. Are you serious? Yes, I am dead. Well, I'm live serious. What are you usually hitting? Somewhere in the arm or hand. That's, oh my God, that's crazy. I always was amazed that um, Ray Charles used to be, able, you know, he would shoot up and he's blind. But he's not quadriplegic. No. But if he was quadriplegic, that would be even more impressive. Blind quadriplegic. Well, you are aware that you can be quadriplegic and still move your arms. Yeah, it's, um, so I, I, I don't know as much as I should, considering, you know, I had a similar injury myself. Quadriplegic yeah. um, is impairment in all four limbs. Okay. So how serious is your impairment? Oh, fucking serious. I can't feel anything from my nipples down. Wow. What about your arms? Here's a good one. Put your arms straight up like uh, you're being crucified or make a T. And draw a line down your middle finger across your chest. And I can't feel from there down. Okay. Um, do you have movement in your arms? Yeah, I can move them. Okay. My hands are just pretty much useless. Oh, that's why you use your mouth to, sh to shoot. Yeah. Why don't you tell us tell us the story of how it happened? If you don't mind, is that cool? Yeah, it'll probably be good for me because I don't think I've actually told anybody like the whole fucking story, truthfully. So uh, yeah, I kind of wrote a few notes down since Dave talked to me about an hour ago. Um, I forgot the day started at ten morning at New Year's Eve of two thousand two to three. I got a call from a douchebag. I didn't like anyway. I don't know. Started out banging coke in our arm. So we did that fucking, I don't know, for however long that lasted. and kind of got drunk. And I knew my buddy was throwing a party that night. We went over to his party and was doing some hardcore drinking. My drink of choice was Jägermeister. And I think I put about four or five bottles away that day. And, uh, well, oh, the only person that had any coke at the party. Happened to be my former best friend that when I was dope sick two years earlier, 
I thought it would be a good idea to break into his apartment and steal his lockbox full of drugs. So, he wasn't about to give me a freaking line of coke or sell me a 50 for 45. <laughs> there was this pond out behind my buddy's apartment that I'd swim across several times that summer for uh, money. You know, put some money in the picture and Hot Wheels will freaking, you know, do something crazy, flip into the pond, swim across it, collect my money. So, I figured I'd do that to get five extra bucks and buy a 50 on uh, New Year's Eve. One outside. Now, this year it was unseasonably warm. It was 61 that New Year's. So I kind of, you know, looked it out, scoped where I was going to freaking jump and do my little dive and everything. Ah, for some reason, at the last second, I decided it would be a good idea to do a, a front and a half gainer, or flip, as I guess you would put it, to a wrestling fan, a 450. Like a, <laughs> a complete rotation and a half into a dive. No, uh, in my delusional mind, I thought since it was warm out, the ice would be thin and I'd punch right through. I was wrong. It was still about six inches thick. Oh, my God. Oh, I went through the ice. I broke the ice with my head and neck. And uh, it was dark. It was black. And I couldn't figure out why I couldn't stand up. You were really but, drunk that night, you were saying. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But... Uh, cold water will sober the fuck out of you, no matter how drunk you are. Did you um, did you know right when you hit it, like something was like wrong and bad? Well, I used to be an athlete, man, like fucking 6'4", walked around about 225 in shape. No, from football, I knew what a stinger was. So I kind of thought, man, I got a wicked stinger here. I can't feel shit. The stinger's like when you get whacked good and pinch your spine, your arms go numb. Yeah, I just thought the ice was thick and I couldn't stand up. And I was trying to punch through it and break through it with the back of my head and everything. And uh, I don't know, it just didn't happen. So I kind of, man, you fucked up. And uh, I remember my last thought was, here's your swell. No, it wasn't my last thought. I knew if I hit the ice straight and if I went through the way I aimed, if I swam towards the other side where the people were watching, maybe somebody would see me. So I swam as close as I could, and uh, nothing really happened. Shit got dark, and I said, well, time to meet your maker. And I remember inhaling water. Wow. The next thing I knew, my buddy um, kicked a hole in the ice and pulled my ass out. And, uh, dragged me up on the curb, and everybody was like, we need to get him inside. We need to get him inside. And I was like, no, I can't feel shit, man. And he put a little lighter underneath my foot. He's like, you don't feel that? I'm like, no. He's like, we ain't moving him anywhere. They called the ambulance, and uh, for the sake of my friend's well-being, I was like, dude, just leave me with the doobie and two cigarettes and get the fuck out of here. So as soon as the lights fucking came in the parking lot, everybody ran back inside. Oh, so, my God. It's crazy. And then you went to the hospital. And they took me to the hospital, and it was New Year's Eve, and uh, the hospital I actually chose to go to that my sisters worked at. The spinal cord doctor was over in Afghanistan doing a month of charity work. So I picked the hospital that didn't have a neurosurgeon. Then they brought me downtown to uh, Northwestern Hospital, Final Court Institute of Chicago. Would it have made a difference if the neurosurgeon had been there or the spinal surgeon who was on vacation had been there? Would it could have made a difference? I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, how, how old were you and where was this? I was in Palatine, Illinois. Uh, I was 22. Uh. 
And how old are you now? Thirty. Just turned thirty-seven in August. All right. Well, uh, what day? August thirteenth. I'm the sixteenth. Hmm. Happy that birthday! Happy fucking birthday! <laughs> oh my Good god! Job. So what do you do now, man? What do you do for hobbies and shit now? It's a good fucking question. I haven't come up with much since I broke my neck. Because everything I used to like to do, like I said, was like pick up basketball, jiu-jitsu, mixed martial arts, fucking. I was into yoga because mixed martial arts. Has anybody has anybody brought you anything? Like, I think this would be good for you. Have you like, has anybody been trying to help? Like, with... Because with, Chris is always talking about... um. You say, is the word actualizing? Self-actualizing. Self-actualizing. I mean, I mean, I'm such a nerd. Like, my mind goes to, like, role-playing games because you can win. What? I don't know. I'm just... <laughs> listen, I, I sound like an idiot. The funny but, thing is, like, I don't, I don't have the friends to do it, but Dungeons and Dragons almost sounds kind of fun, man. Yeah. It is fun. Like, yeah, but uh, winning at that isn't... I don't know. There's something about that freaking exercise exerting yourself and giving it all you had of course but we got to deal with what we got here yeah you know so um since breaking the neck and taking walking away and like everything i haven't found anything that fills that void no i hear that man is that and i'm sure that just exacerbated the drug use right yeah yeah kind of yeah totally did where do you get money for drugs you pay taxes? Almost. <laughs> Basically. No, Dave doesn't. He doesn't declare it. Shut up. He don't works touch. in cash. Wait, wait. On the books, Dave makes like 10 grand. Security <laughs> your social security disability. And can you can you have a prodigious drug habit with that money? Um, No, not really. Yeah, it's got to be tough. Yeah, I mean. If I want to be broke, I got like $650 I could spend on drugs all month. Yeah. And who do you live with? Live with my mom. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I suggest Dun- Dungeons and Dragons for sure. I think you should find some online group. I'm not even joking. Yeah, you find some online group of Dungeons and Dragons. I, I mean, you should do online recovery, online Dungeons and Dragons. I, I don't know. I you guys should promote this fucking website because it's awesome, but you shouldn't do it unless they pay. The in the rooms we talked about that. Yeah. The great fucking website, man. Yeah, it's online uh, meetings. Are there any yeah. good online meetings for uh, H- uh, Hot Wheels? Yes, they are. I recommend the website highly. It's in the rooms.com. Yes, it is. How often are you doing those? Um, well, I try and get one in every day. Fucking as of recently, I try to get a 90-90 since I fell in my face. How many can you do in a day? If you wanted, you could wake up at 7 in the morning and do them all the way to 11 at night. Yeah, that'd be a lot. You could do 90 and 90 in like five days or something. Basically, <laughs> one every other hour. What was the last relapse like? Shitty, dude. I mean, I don't You're know. I got, and then freaking I did some coke, and then I was fucking all high. and was like, you know what? You already fucked up, dude. Just do what you want to do. And I did some dope, and then the next day I went to a meeting. What, who, who sells, somebody comes to your house and sells it to you? No, I live in a suburb right outside of Chicago. Which one? So, Mount Prospect, Illinois. I know the Chicago suburbs. You don't know the Chicago I do. I, I'm going to be in Hampshire next month. Oh. Based huh? down like 20 miles from the west side, the dope spot. So you go down there to cop? I, 
I personally don't. Freaking usually uh, somebody else makes the run and I'll fucking pay them. Mm. I mean, they, that's how I used to do it. I don't do it anymore. But that was uh, the go-to. Somebody knew it. Who who would who who did it? Um, just one girl I know, or somebody else, a couple people. Hmm. A wheelchair will give you forty bucks to go down for. So who doesn't want to call me real quick? Right, it's free dope for other people. Yeah, uh, this is going to sound very stupid, but are there any people, like professional people? who, like, outreach people, who, like, offer you ideas and, like... Like, is there anybody offering you anything good besides us? Um, yeah, there's actually a counselor at, uh, my doctor that I go to for... Fuck, I don't care what people say. I take Subacs, and this place is actually, like, legitimate. Yeah. They're not just, here's your fucking refill, and I'll see you next month. No, there's an alcohol and drug counselor there. I... I've actually been opening up and talking to him because it kind of helps. Uh, last two times he's given me these silly little workbooks. And I actually did them, man, because everything else that I've done in my life hasn't fucking worked. So I've just been trying different shit, man. Yeah. And but first of all, don't, don't, dude, don't get bat down on yourself for taking some boxing. You know what I mean? Like, that's like some maybe 12 step stuff talking, but like, it's um like Dave and I both support like using it in the right way and it sounds like wherever you get it prescribed from it's it's they do it right, you know? Yeah. But I got one dickhead in my ear telling, Oh, you're not cleaner that ain't fucking I don't know. It just freaking makes you feel not good. Of course. At least me. Yeah, of course. Well, I, I know that like you're probably not the only quadriplegic heroin addict suboxone user and uh and that your story will be useful to other people and that your struggle will be useful to other people and like i think the more you go places like the, the more you can i mean I, I i don't know what's going on in that suburb of illinois but i'm sure there's somebody that wants to drag you to a meeting and and yeah. maybe, you know maybe you could get out there um, I got a couple face-to-face ones. Yeah, of course. You never know how your story is going to impact other people. I mean, my sponsor, um, when he was like 16 or something, he killed a kid by accident. I think mine did too, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. And so, I maybe mean... you guys have the same sponsor. Maybe, yeah, maybe we have the same sponsor. But I'm saying, though, like, he thought there was, like, no coming back from that. And now he's been able to turn it into, like, a net plus and help other people because of it, you know? And I think Hot Wheels could do the same thing. Yeah. Dude, if me talking keeps fucking one person from jamming a needle in their arm fucking tonight, tomorrow, cool. Yeah. Or, or jumping into a frozen pond. Yeah, or jumping into a frozen pond. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. yeah. Oh, my immortal words, freaking not immortal. My last walking words were, uh, fuck steve <laughs> I had one up his silly stunts, man. Me and him were uh, one in the same. <laughs> oh, we were going to tell Brandon Novak that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we can still tell him. We got to tell him. The last words were, fuck Steve. Did you call him? Huh? No, I, I did not. You should call him. He would love to hear from yeah, you. Yeah, or just you know, even just text him, you know? 
text him you heard him on Dopey Podcast and say you want to let him know that your last words were fuck Steve-O before you broke your neck. Here's the thing. I've heard Steve-O do some interviews and stuff. and He's on his shit, man. Steve-O's got his act together tight from what I've seen and heard. That's what I've heard too. Yeah. They're all trying. And then Bam's trying to do some things like skateboarding in, in Spain, trying to get sober he's or some still, shit. He's, he's still, still drinking, but he's... I don't know about him. All I know is fucking Steve-O's story. Yeah. And, uh, and Novak. He, when it got to the four stuff, he got so depressed, he had to check back into the mental ward. And I've had two different sponsors tell me that I need to talk to him. But I don't want to freaking talk to him and have him fucking feel guilty. I don't, you know what I mean? Like, Who, Steve-O? Yes. Well, I don't think you have to talk to him. Your recovery does not, is not hinging upon your ability to connect with Steve-O. And I don't think that you will... I mean, Steve-O probably would feel guilty. You don't have to worry about his feelings. If you want to reach out, reach out. But I don't, like Dave said, I don't think your recovery depends on that. But still, I think it's... I'm, I don't know. I mean, at some point, I would want to tell him, you know? I know well, that uh, Brandon... Like one of the first that pops up in my first stuff, man, when I start writing, so... Really? What is? Steve-O. How's that, what, is, what does it sound like? Uh, one of my resentments, acting like the jackass on TV, like trying to one-up one of his stunts, and fucking here I am. Wow. I wonder how many people have that on their list. I mean, um, I knew a kid that jumped into a thorn bush because of jackass and got all tore up, but, I mean, it sounds like you really took shit to the next level. Uh, dude, anything worth doing is worth doing right. <laughs> or wrong. <laughs> but not yeah. to mention, in, in Hot Wheels' defense, and, and this is going to sound like a joke, but it I'm, was, like, I'm a fucking extremist. It was 60 what? degrees. Like, I, I would think that the yeah, ice, the would, ice would melt it. You know, yeah, I'm like, oh, I'm sure like on any other day. Like he, and he went through. He made it through. Just a little too thick. Yeah. Just a little too thick. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was also 230 some odd pounds coming. I don't know, probably down from 12 feet in the air with momentum doing a front and a half flip under my head. Yeah, it's a dumb question, but was part of the bet that you had to dive head first? Could you have landed? He was embellishing. He's adding to it. Nope, that was uh, at the last second. I decided to do that. No, Steve-O made you do it. Fucking Steve-O, man! Steve-O didn't make me do anything. <laughs> but spelled it like, who wants to see somebody run and do a cannonball? Fuck that, dude! I want to impress everybody. Yeah. Now that got your attention. Watch this. Going from ground level to the pond, there was kind of like this embankment to drop down like five feet. So I got some elevation before I like came down, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. And what was but, your favorite drug? Dope was your favorite drug? Adrenaline, then heroin. Adrenaline, adrenaline. heroin, then DMT. No. <laughs> it was just something I did twice. Hot Wheels. So you have seven days now clean. Yeah. What do you say... Well, you know, we're not going to record for another three weeks, but we'll check in on you in three weeks and see how you're doing. Okay. And you can yeah. also call me. You know, I would love it if you called me if you if you feel like using, or even if you don't. I could use somebody to call me like that if you want to. All right. I will. Well, it's just like fucking, I don't know, alcoholism in general is a f- the disease of isolation and loneliness. 
And it's like you got this condition that just makes it even harder to fucking reach out to other people when the natural fucking beast inside us tells us not to reach out. And be alone. So yeah. it's like fucking you're hit twice, you know? Not to mention he feels sorry for himself and he gets a check every month and it's and people want to cop for him and it's a whole yeah, thing. Of course. So let's do that. You want to – you're down for that? Hot Wheels? Three weeks? Yeah. All right. So it's seven days. So that should be 28 days. And hey, three. don't put any pressure on it. No, but I mean I'm going to put a little pressure. So 28 yeah, days. Is, My whole life, you know, when I thrive under pressure. Okay. So tw- in, in three weeks, 28 we want, days. We want 28, 28 days. 28 days. All right? And I want you to call me if you ever feel like it or you feel like using or anything – I'll always answer the phone. I might not always be able to talk, but I'll always answer the phone. Ask Chris. Don't I always answer the phone? Yeah, sometimes. Unless I'm on the phone with my... <laughs> like you had it in my hand on your freaking number, and it's like, ah, he's probably serving a table right now. I'll, I'll answer the phone. Fuck them. Fucking, like Chris said, the nature of the beast. Yeah. We should find you a fucking online Dungeons & Dragons group, too. Maybe I'll play, too. I, I got really into Skyrim, which isn't an online Fuck one. Fuck you, dude. I got into Skyrim. <laughs> what is Skyrim? No, we'll have a Skyrim talk separately, but I got obsessed. That was the last video game that I played a lot. I played oh, it like 12 hours a day. What is it? Yeah. Uh-huh. You like build your character and make your character strong. <laughs> I, I, dude, I got to the point where I could kill the giants in two hits because I cheated and I, I went around and I got like the, the, the like the armband and the and like the, the uh. hit. Helmet and the tunic, everything that increased just one-handed weapons or two-handed weapon. Okay. Anyways, we don't want to nerd out on Dopey. Brian, we're going to call you in three weeks, all right? Yeah. All right, brother. Be in touch, man. Right. Sounds good. Thanks, man. No problems. Thank you. Later. Later. So that was the first time Brian ever called into the show. And uh, and him and Chris were Skyrim guys. There were a bunch of things in there that... uh that I can't help but smile at. I think uh, Chris in the rums, right? Instead of in the rooms. Or the fact that back then it was before COVID and online meetings weren't really a thing. So when COVID hit, it was probably great for Brian that all of these online meetings were happening and Dopey Nation online was happening. And I know that Brian made a ton of great friends in Dopey Nation he was incredibly active in Bob Farr's Don't Die community. He was active in the Church of Church and Other Drugs community. We lost uh, a great, great friend, great friend of the show. Every week I put up the show, I'd send out some advanced copies, and I would often send one to Brian. I tried to check on him as often as I could, which was usually monthly, and it's going to be painful to put this show up and not send it to him straight away. We want to send heartfelt condolences to his family and friends, and we love you, Bri. I got a note from Dopey Nation mainstay Duncan, a.k.a. Double Decker Dunk, or whatever he calls himself, Slam Dunk. He wrote, hey, dude, I realize that there is a dark cloud hovering over the Dopey Nation with the anniversary of Chris's death and Hot Wheels passing away. Although I never met him, I'm sure Chris would be extremely proud of your work in keeping the podcast moving. And I know that Dopey and the Zoom rum, and he spelled it R-U-M, brought Brian a lot of joy. Also, and with the utmost sincerity, Dopey saved my life. I don't think that I would be sober today if it wasn't for you and Chris showing me that recovery can be fun. 
And through the Dopey Zoom Room, I have actually developed some real friendships with a bunch of like-minded people. Name another podcast that has as much of a positive impact on the world as Dopey. You can't because Dopey is the shit. Nuff said. So thank you, Slam Duncan. And I have to say, the Dopey Nation Zoom Room is totally free. And they do like at least, I don't know, 24, 25 meetings a week. The address is 804-300-586. The password is Toodles. The schedule is posted on Instagram, Patreon, probably on Reddit. Although these fuckers on Reddit are really giving me a hard time. They hated Fentanyl J last week on Reddit. They hated him. There's more talk about Fentanyl J on Reddit than about Hot Wheels or the spin article. The dopey Redditors are a bunch of cold-blooded fucks. I got. I want to play a quick voicemail I got from another Dopey Nation mainstay, Jeremy Turner. Hold on. In in, in response to the Reddit backlash. Dude, I really like the whole uh, thing between you and Fentanyl J and talking about he thrives in structure. And I don't know. I thought it was a good episode, dude. There's a lot of people talking shit on Reddit about Fentanyl J, but I think he is a good addition to the show. So fuck what motherfuckers on Reddit's talking about. Good episode. Sorry to hear about Hot Wheels. Hope you're doing fine. That's a nice message from Jeremy Turner, a.k.a. Whitey Tidies. And even though the Redditors on Dopey hate Fentanyl J, uh, we got to give a big shout-out to Cormac for running Dopey Reddit, even though it's a bunch of fucking haters in a toxic community. I'm just kidding, Reddit. I'm just kidding. I'm glad you guys are out there talking shit, doing your thing. You know, let your freak flag fly. And somebody else's freak flag that we love to let fly is my dad, and he hasn't been on in a bit. So we are going to call my dad and see what's going on with him. He's He wants a lot of credit because he was the closest prediction, like he says, he was the only prediction for the 10 million downloads and he says he wants some kind of a prize, but he doesn't really want a prize. He just wants credit. My dad always wants credit. So let's see what's going on with him. Hello. Hello. So we're recording. Welcome back to the show. Oh, you, I'm on already? No, you can't even. Oh, hello, everybody. Hi. So, Hello, Dave. I, I, do you want to start by uh, paying homage to Brian Hot Wheels Connolly, or do you want to just get into you bragging about uh, hitting the ten million? Well, listen. Uh, the the uh, this weekend uh, with uh, this podcast about you know Christmas death and then Fentanyl J is on it, and uh, and then the ten million download, and then all of a sudden I see you know that Hot Wheels has died. It was just horrible. It's really really horrible. Uh, and that piece in Spin Magazine, boy, I mean that was very hard to read. Also, I mean it was a tough tough thing. How did you handle it? Well, I've been uh, I've been going through it because. Um, I get to be alive and I get to feel like the show is successful and all these people are, are gone. And it makes me, you know, it's it's a mix of emotions of guilt and pride and 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 the excitement of of having my vision come true at the exp- seemingly at the expense of these guys lives, which is very difficult. I no, know. No, no. I know it's not exactly the deal, but it's just 
it's it's you know it's a mix it's a mix of uh of stuff you know well you, you listen you you know that um i'm i'm very proud of you doing this and uh, let me tell you you have done you have done much more positive positive things that you should not feel any 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 guilt whatsoever no i know i, anyway, I just got so i just got would... i just got a message from somebody else who yeah. loved fentanyl j on the show last yeah. week there was a lot of fallout I, a lot of fallout around yeah. fentanyl j did you ever listen to that one i i i'm 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 in the middle of his part of it. I, I did the whole Chris thing, and yeah, that was a terrible episode. I, I know, I, but but uh, but I understand why you you put it up, you put it up there. It showed it showed everything. It showed the good, the bad, and 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 uh, and everything uh, you know about how you guys started out this thing. So I thought it was appropriate. And the Fentanyl J thing, uh, yeah, I'm I'm getting through it. Uh, so what were you going to say? So it was a, it was fallout, right? Pro and con. Yeah, Fentanyl J is one of the more is probably the most polarizing guest in the history of the show, where people are rarely, uh, rarely ambivalent about him. They either love him or they hate him, and you you've yeah. tended to hate him. Has he won you over this week, Dad? Look, you know, uh, you know what I say. I hate that he sold fentanyl. Right. I hate that he sold fentanyl. I do not hate him. Uh, and I and I hope I hope he, he he his life goes on in a much better way in a more positive way. That's that's my feeling. And you're you're claiming that you nailed the 10 million download count to the deck. Look, I don't want any argument about this, but I'm the winner. It's it's look two three months ago you said, Dad, when do you think we're going to have the 10 million downloads? So I asked you all these mathematical questions yes. that you were hard to give me about how many episodes per week, per month, yes. whatever. And I come up with July 27th. That's what I come up with. And the 10 million download, I think, if you really check it, it's probably July 24th. So I missed it by no, no, three days. No, no, it was the 23rd. The 24th was the anniversary of Chris's death. It was the 23rd all right, but, that, uh, that we okay. hit it. But it's okay. All right. So I missed it by a few days. Therefore, I'm the winner. And you know why I should be the winner? Because I was the only one who entered the contest. Yeah, in the old days, other people, <laughs> other people would make predictions. I don't know why people. No, wait a minute. You don't have anybody else who made. I, I was the only. I made the prediction. So did anybody else make a prediction? I don't think anybody. No. I, do you think that the? Why do you suppose no one else made a prediction? I don't know. I maybe you, you didn't push it. Do you think you it's because you didn't do your normal spiel? Right, because I've because I've failed at giving prizes for the predictions. Yeah, exactly. You, you right, exactly. <laughs> I, I'm expecting I'm expecting the normal prize that you give for us contest winners. That means I'm getting nothing. Yes, that's that's what I'm expecting from uh, you. Okay, so the two things I want to know. The first thing is yeah. you haven't been on the show for a while. Are there any updates that the Dopey Nation should know about your life, Dad? Well, I went to Switzerland uh, with, with my friend Jenny and for Alex and Nina's B'nai Mitzvah business, which was very, very good. It worked out very, very well. Uh, so that was a good trip. Um, and uh, Switzerland is a beautiful country, and it was not hot like Italy, Spain, Greece, Phoenix, Las Vegas. I mean... Gosh, the temperatures are crazy. I mean, did you know that the water in Florida hit 101 degrees in the Gulf of Mexico? 
I mean, it's like outrageous. Well, that's why the coral uh, reefs are all dying. Oh, it's horrible. I mean, I, I'm telling you, human beings better get their act together. It's, uh, but, but up here near the lakeside mansion, it's just raining and raining and raining, but it's not 100 degrees, that's for sure. So it's fine. And, uh, and then the other thing is uh, my leg is, is, is bothering me, and I'm, I'm, still, I'm still working on trying to get it better. But that's, that's the news. These are some really <laughs> worthless news. updates, Dad, just, just so we're clear. Well, sorry. Well, wait a minute. Why do you want me to? I no, don't I'm have just And do you have any criticism of the show that you would like to add? Uh, no. Uh, do you want me to think about it for a while? No, I don't. No, I don't have any criticism. I just I don't want you to feel bad about the success of the show. It's it's it's, it's because of your hard work. That's why it's successful. And what about and that? Very that hard what about that spin uh, article? Is there anything you want to say about that article in general? Well, it's interesting because you said you, that you said this is another one of these weird things. You said that the interview was in January. Is that true? It was it was cold. It was it was sometime between January and March when Matt and I had and that then it interview. Gets, and then it winds up getting printed on this pretty much the same time of the ten million download and the and the episode of, you know about about Chris's death. I mean, it's amazing how it all came on the same weekend and four Hot Wheels dying and the same thing. The article was very dark. I mean, it said positive things, but it but putting pictures of and the ages of the of these young guys that have died was is very difficult, uh, and it's still happening. And um, and uh, your podcast is trying to you know to get people to not go down that path, which is you know just terrific. That, more more spiritual people than you would say there was not a coincidence. And when the article came out, but that's not that's not well, the way you would you would talk about this. No, I, well, I, I it certainly was a coincidence. I would say that, <laughs> but I'm not saying that. <laughs> I think that's funny. Well, it's like at my meeting, everybody's always saying there are no coincidences, and you say there are coincidences. Well, I, I, listen, when something happens, it happens. Whether right. it whether you put a, a meaning to it or you don't put a meaning to it, something happened and these things happen pretty much at the same time. So that's what you know. That's what all I have to say. Uh, co- I think yeah, it's a coincidence. That article could have come out last week, two weeks later. Who knows? So you're saying but it is it not a happened. cosmic confluence. It is just a coincidence. No. But couldn't a coincidence also be a cosmic confluence? That's, I guess so. That's how I look at it. All right, enough of your, your anti-spiritual ponderings. Let's get to some reviews, yeah. Dad. There's been a lot of reviews. All right, now look. Guys, now, you know, I'm up, I'm up at the lake, so I don't have my real top-notch computer here, so I don't have any of the iTunes reviews, but I got a review from All Right, All Right by Mama Hayes. This is a long one, five, five stars. Huh? Is that, and is that one of the new ones? What are you looking at? I'm looking at I don't I am looking at reviews for the podcast Dopey. And just so we're clear, uh, Dopey Nation, I, my dad doesn't know the difference between an email, a review, a Facebook comment, or an Instagram comment. The all right, all, all right. True. The all right, all but it right. It does say review. It is a review. It yeah. is an iTunes review. Yes. I see. I told you. Yes. Okay. So you want me to read that one? That's a long one. Yeah, read it. All right. Okay, so it actually it says, All right, all right, by Mama Hayes. 
I have been listening to Dopey since the dawn of time, which is an exaggeration. Not really. I jumped in after Chris passed, but I didn't know it at the time as I started at the beginning. Somehow I survived the terrible audio and binged away as I was driving a lot at the time. I can still feel the ache in the cracks it made in my heart when I heard Dave announce that Chris died. You couldn't have realized at the time what a special gift you gave all of us listeners by continuing the show and mourning with us. You showed us that life is worth living even when it's incredibly hard and painful. You showed up and you learned and improved your skill set as far as audio production and interviewing guests go. You helped me navigate through my sobriety with belly laughs and stories I could never have imagined. And then she says, um, parenthesis, shout out to Alan. Close parenthesis. <laughs> Wait, I, come on. It's, it was, that was, there's three words about me. That's all. Every week I think to myself, I need to write a review for Dave. Then as soon as I exit my vehicle, the thought disappears from my damaged brain. With every listened episode, I feel your Jewish shame penetrate my speakers. So, I don't think right, there, I don't right. think I don't think there is Jewish shame. I think it's Jewish guilt. Well, you know what? That could be a, a philosophical discussion uh, about people who are ashamed to be Jewish. And uh, but no, the usual expression is Jewish guilt. Right. Um, There's self-hating right, Jews so, who are ashamed to be Jewish, but this is Jewish guilt she's referring to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would think that's what she means, yeah. Uh, so, all right, all right. Today is the day. Thanks for all your hard work and dedication to creating a show that literally saves lives through transparency and acceptance. The world needs more of that. Toodles and stay strong. And she, she signs with her name. I guess I can say it, right? Sure. Carmen. Um, and, you know, she that's, that's sort of pretty much what I'm trying to tell you. She wrote it very well. Uh, that's what I'm telling you, that you, the program is, 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 uh, is done wonderful things. All right. Well, I appreciate um, that, Carmen, and I appreciate that, Dad. And are you gearing up for another fantasy basketball season as we speak? Oh, yeah. Now, listen, this, this, this uh, I don't even know if I should bring it up on the show. Oh, boy. But... Well, look, October 7th, we're talking it's either right at the moment that we have to have to, you know, uh, start picking the teams or pretty close. And there's a good chance that Seymour may be at DobyCon. Oh, boy. So I, I hope you don't treat him badly, you know. I would never. It, have it, I it, ever it, treated Seymour badly, ever? Only, only verbally on the podcast. Well, that's because he's a diabolical megalomaniac <laughs> in the league not in real life yeah. but in the fantasy basketball okay. league he's as bad as hitler he wants he wants oh. to dominate you he wants to embarrass me he wants his family to be above us he wants to take advantage of me with backroom shoddy deals he didn't he make <laughs> some trades that were totally not moral with his no, son no, no, didn't no. his son drop no. him some some players one of his sons no that may have been in the old days. No, not so, not the not the new days. Diabolical no. Seymour no. at play again. I love Seymour in real life, but for the show and for the league, Seymour is public enemy number one. But if he's going to be well, at anyway, DopeyCon, that's a very exciting addition. Yeah, I'm sure that you may take advantage of that. Uh, uh, anyway, all right. So yeah, I'm I'm excited. I, I'm I'm still waiting for all of these trades to happen that aren't happening. 
and um, and uh, the Knicks don't seem to be doing anything. So I don't know what's going to happen with them. You see, Fournier, uh, Fournier hates Tom Thibodeau. He said he spits on Thibodeau. I spit on Thibodeau really? in New York. That's what he said because he wants to get traded, but nobody wants Fournier. Yeah, but he's going to play for the French team in the in this world world tournament in August. So he wants to show his stuff, to, you know, to get 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 picked up by somebody. I took I took um, I took Susan right to Fire Island last weekend, and we're swimming in yeah. the ocean. And there's this family right next to us, and they were French, and uh, and they live ah. in in Greenport, Brooklyn. And the woman works for a French chocolate company. And I was talking to the 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 guy, and he's a basketball coach, and he's like, I do not understand. Why do I not play Fournier? He's so great. Mm. So, isn't that yeah. interesting? What do you, what is your take on you know, on Fournier? He's he is a flash-in-the-pan three-point shooter who, when he's hot, he's hot, and usually he's not. Uh, I don't think he can do anything else. Uh, all he is is to shoot threes, and he's not as consistent as somebody needs to be. Maybe DiVincenzo is going to be better. Well, we'll see. Um, the but, French guy thinks yeah, Fournier but, is like Michael J- Michael Jordan. Well, obviously that's not right. So, Yeah, that's that's not correct. But may, I, I mean, maybe they can get something for him. Maybe you know, he and Barrett could go somewhere with three – I was three uh, – what do you go, Stephen A. Smith. He – that Fournier Barrett, three first round picks for Damian Lillard. We don't need don't Lillard. Know, don't we don't want Lillard. I don't want Lillard. Lillard's gonna get injured as soon as he gets traded. He's too old. I don't want to give up everybody for Lillard. Uh I hear Donovan Mitchell wants to come though. No, I would not do that deal. Uh, I would not do three picks, RJ and Fournier for Lillard. I would not. No. No, I would do it in a minute. I know, but you don't realize uh, he's gonna I, slip on a banana peel. He's not he's gonna play thirty games this year, wherever he goes. You'll see. Well, anyway, so uh, that's yeah. So I'm, of course, I'm looking forward to fantasy basketball. Um, yeah. Anyway, so the thing about uh, DobeCon, et cetera, et cetera, is still in the works. You're still doing your planning on that. Tickets for DobeCon should know. be on sale next week for Dopey patrons. So if you're worried about DobeCon selling out, join Dopey Patreon. What, I, I, are you talking to me? I'm a member. I'm Not you. Pick, so I'm talking you, to the audience, you know I mean? Dad. Jesus Christ. Oh, well, All right. Well, thank, th- thank you, Dad. This has been a really riveting conversation, as always. And uh, we're going to say uh, we're going to say goodbye to the audience. Say goodbye to the audience. Yeah, yeah. Everybody, stay strong, everybody, and be healthy out there. And toodles to Chris. All right. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, uh, and fucking toodles for, for Brian and for... Todd and for David and for Troy and for Andrew and for Colleen and for Liam and for the Australian guy that I don't remember his name and for everybody that's died uh, fucking toodles I want to take a walk around the world I wonder would it do me any good Until I get some money in my pocket then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood But I want to be good so bad want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And I want to take a ride up in the sky 
Watch this airplane just pass me by And I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive But I want to be good so bad Want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And my shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand Shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand busted city far behind I'll take the high road however far it winds because peace and love are very 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 hard to find and I wanna be good so bad wanna be good so bad so bad I wanna be good so bad bad desires all I ever had Damn it, all these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And these suckers make me mad And I want to call my dad And it's all I ever had 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 And these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And I want to call my dad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had